Thank you, Glenn. I'm going to invite you to take your Bibles and turn uh, to the Old Testament, to the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 9. We're going to be looking at the uh, entire chapter, but we're going to read just the first six verses to, uh, to set the tone. Uh, if you're using the Pew Bible, it's page 404, Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah 9, verses 1 through 6. This is the word of God. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it they made confession and worshipped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Bani, Sherebiah, Bani, and Chenani. And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashabaneah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. As I mentioned during Jacob's baptism, something happened this past week that uh, many of us have been praying for and even working for, for a long time. Roe versus Wade was overturned and we rejoice that uh, there is uh, perhaps, hopefully, more protection for the most vulnerable members of our society, for image bearers who for too long have been slaughtered in the womb. As Christians, we... Um, we are concerned, aren't we, about our nation. We are concerned when we know that millions and millions of babies have been aborted, killed, murdered. We are concerned about the, the right to life. We are concerned about the, the slaughtering of the unborn. And as Christian parents, we, um, we love our children, don't we? We, we want to see a, a safe environment for them. We want to see a world in which future generations think more highly of life than does our generation. But as Christian parents, we want something more than that for our children. 
We not only want to love them and provide a safe environment for them, but if we are, if we are Christian parents, we also have a deep desire that they would know who God is. That they would know the greatness and the majesty and the glory and the grace of our God. And God's given us that calling. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, God's people are told, These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Now, that doesn't mean that you go home today and take a, a Sharpie and, and write all over your fence Scripture verses. The, the point is that our parenting should be marked by a persistence in teaching our children the Word of God. In Psalm 78, God tells us to teach the great stories of the Bible to our children so that the next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born, and they in turn would tell their children. Then they would put their trust in God and would not forget his deeds, but would honor his commands. Ultimately, isn't that what we want? We want our children to put their trust in the Lord and to follow him all the days of their lives. That is what is most dear to us as Christian parents. Now, as we saw last week from Nehemiah chapter 8, uh, all of us are to be given a steady diet of the Word of God. Not just our children, but, but all of us. Young and old, lifelong church members, brand new church members. All of us are to be in the Word of God. What effect does God work, God's Word have in our lives? In other words, when, when God works in us or when he works in our children by his spirit, through his word, what is the result of that? Parents and grandparents, what, what should be your prayer for your children and for your grandchildren in, in terms of what God's word would, would produce in them? It's, it's certainly not a matter of mere head knowledge. It, it's certainly not a, an information dump. It, it's not simply that, that our children would be able to rattle off the books of the Bible or, or tell us what chapter we could find David and Goliath or, or Daniel and the lion's den. Our goal as parents is, is not to just pour information into them and then watch them become little Pharisees. Our desire for our children and our desire for ourselves is that God's word would transform us. That it would change our lives, that it would impact our, our daily living with each other, that it would impact how we live our lives in this world, that it would make us people who love others and care about the souls of other people. Last Sunday morning, as we, as we went through Nehemiah chapter 8, we saw that as, as God's people heard the law of God read and explained to them, they wept. 
They, they realized that they had not kept God's commands, and so they grieve over their sins. God was working in them by his spirit and through his word. And as we come to chapter 9 this morning, we see that God continues to do that. And what we see is that God's word leads us not only to weep over our sins, not only to confess our sins, but it also leads us to prayer. And that's where we want to focus our attention this morning, this, this wonderful prayer that is found here in chapter 9. Now you'll notice, if you have your Bible open, that the chapter begins by, by giving us a timestamp. It's now the 24th day of the seventh month. As I told you last week, if you were here, uh, the seventh month is a, was a very significant month on the Jewish religious calendar. God had commanded that, that three important events take place in the seventh month. The, the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Booths. And now as chapter 9 begins, festival season is over. It's, it's near the end of the seventh month, but God's people have once again assembled together. You could picture it kind of like this, as we are assembled together this morning. And we notice about God's people, first of all, they're in the midst of fasting. They are wearing sackcloth, and they have dust on their heads. Children, do you know what that means? Do you know what it means that God's people are, are fasting and wearing sackcloth and have dust on their heads? What this means is that this is a national day of confession and repentance. And this is the fruit of the Spirit and the Word. We hear God's law read, as we heard earlier this morning from Ephesians 4, and we are reminded that we have fallen short. We are reminded that we have not loved God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We are reminded that we have not loved our neighbors ourselves. And the result of this, the result of the Holy Spirit working through his word, is confession. Confessing our sins, confessing that we have fallen short, confessing that we have broken the law of God. Now, certainly we're not left there. We're not left to wallow in our sin. In fact, as the, as the Heidelberg Catechism tells us, one of the reasons why we must hear God's law so regularly is so that, listen, all our life long, we may more and more come to know our sinful nature and thus more eagerly seek the forgiveness of sins and righteousness of Christ. In other words, the law drives us to Jesus. It doesn't drive you to despair. It doesn't drive you to, to remain in and wallow in your sins. The law of God drives us to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we look to him and to his righteousness, and we find in him the perfect Savior, and so as we look at this chapter, we notice that for a quarter of the day, children for, for maybe up to six hours, they read from the law of God, and for another six hours, they worship God and they confess their sins. And as part of this, they offer up this beautiful prayer to God. This is one of the most marvelous prayers in all of the Bible. This is a prayer that has much to teach us about the shape of our own prayers. And specifically, this prayer is a pointed reminder to us that our prayers are to be God-centered. 
In, in other words, how much time in our own prayer lives do we spend focusing on who God is? If you're like me, you, you spend a lot of time praying for what you need. We're, we're quick to, to pray for God to bring the trial to an end. We're diligent to pray, Lord, get me out of this. We're quick to pray when, when our backs are up against the wall or, or when someone else we know and love is hurting or suffering. But how much time do we spend in prayer focused on him? And, and yet that is what this prayer teaches us. And I know that, that I need to hear this. It's very easy to focus the vast majority of prayer on my needs and the needs of other people. But how much time do I really spend uh, meditating on and praising God for who he is? One thing you'll notice about this prayer, I think it's very interesting, is that it's, uh, it's essentially a recounting of Old Testament history, isn't it? You, you can read this prayer and, and pretty much walk your way right through the Old Testament. You have mention of creation. You have mention of God's calling of Abraham. There's slavery in Egypt. There's exodus from Egypt. There's the, the wilderness wanderings. There's provision in the wilderness. There's the conquest of Canaan. There's the period of the judges. There's the exile to Assyria and to Babylon. And, and finally, there's the return from exile. And so in a very real sense, this, this prayer kind of reads like Old Testament history. Genesis all the way through to the end. But, but I hope that, that you will see that this prayer is not merely a history log. This prayer, more importantly, is a prayer that teaches us about our God. This past week, the, the children at Vacation Bible School learned about some of the attributes of God. And, and children, if you were here for VBS, that, that's a wonderful thing to learn. To understand God's greatness and his power and his majesty and his, his kingly rule over all things and, and his faithfulness. To understand that that, that our God is a loving God who can always be trusted. Children, if you were here, I, I pray that, that this past week at Vacation Bible School was not just fun for you, but, but it was a great reminder of who God is. This prayer also teaches us about God. Four things. Number one, God is the Creator. God is the creator. Notice verse 6. You are the Lord, you alone. Now stop right there for just a moment. The religion of the Bible is an exclusive religion. We are taught by our culture that everyone's viewpoint is valid. We are taught by our culture that, that all roads lead ultimately to to heaven or to God or to paradise or whatever you want to say. We are taught that there are, are many options. But that's not what the Bible teaches and that's not the truth. 
The Bible doesn't come to you and say, it's your choice. You've got this God over here and this God over here and this God over here. You pick. The Bible says there is only one God. The living God, the true God. In sharp contrast to the nations around them who were polytheists and believed in many gods, Israel declares in the beginning of this prayer that there is only one God. Notice how verse 6 continues. You have made heaven the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. This is also contrary to our world today, isn't it? Our world today tells us that uh, there's no such thing as creation. But the Bible is very clear that God is the creator of all things. Genesis 1 and 2 is, is not a myth. It's not an allegory. It's not a poetic way of telling a story so that you can understand it more simply. The Bible plainly teaches that God is the creator. Now, we shouldn't be surprised when the the world rejects this. After all, Romans chapter 1 says that, that although God has made himself known in creation, unbelieving man rejects that knowledge and he worships the creature rather than the creator. But what is troubling is when churches and whole denominations move away from the plain teaching of Scripture that God is the creator. Thankfully, in our own federation of churches, we've we've made a very clear statement about what we believe about creation. This was made all the way back in 2001 when the URC was fairly new. And this statement includes some very important points. God created the heavens and the earth and all things visible and invisible. God created all things out of nothing. God gave every creature its shape and being. Adam was a real person, not a myth. God created all things good in six days, defined as evenings and mornings. And all of this means that we reject any evolutionary teaching, including theistic evolution, concerning the origin of the earth and of all creatures. Brothers and sisters, don't miss how critical the doctrine of creation really is. You see, if we can explain away uh, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, if we can say, well, you know, that's not entirely true. Adam wasn't really a real person. He's just a kind of a mythological figure to make a point. If we can explain away the first three chapters of Genesis, what else can we explain away in Scripture? If we can say that, that that's not true, will we also say that about the resurrection of Jesus? Will we also say that about the miracles of the Bible? God, as the creator, is a foundational truth. You reject that and the foundation crumbles. And really, think about this. The fact that God is the creator of all things should move us to worship him in awe. This is not, again, just head knowledge. This is not just an information dump into your head. This is made to, to move us to worship him. Children, just, just think about the fact that God made everything out of nothing. 
He just spoke. And it came to be. Isn't that amazing? God said, let there be light. And there was light. God said, let there be a sun. And there was a sun. God said, let there be elephants. And there were elephants. And think about all the stars that God created. Did you know that that if you could count 10 million stars per second, now none of us can do this, but if you could count 10 million stars per second, do you know how long it would take you to count all the stars? 63 million years. That's how many stars there are. And yet, Psalm 147 says this about the stars. It says, God counts the stars and calls them all by name. Parents, teach your children about the wonders of creation. And be amazed at the power of the one who created all of this. How magnificent he is. And so that's where this prayer starts. It it begins by praising God for his greatness in creation. Second thing we see is that God is the covenant-making God. He's the covenant-making God. Again, this chapter is a summary, kind of, of Old Testament history. It starts with creation. And now you'll notice, if you look at verse 7, it moves on to God's covenant with Abraham. How God made a covenant with Abraham. Children, you all know Abraham, right? He's a, a very important person in the Old Testament, very important person in the, in the drama of redemption. But did you know that one thing we have to remember about Abraham is that he was a pagan. He grew up in, a, in an unbelieving home. He grew up in a place called Ur, U-R. And Ur was a center for the worship of the moon god. Abraham grew up in unbelief. And and yet, God graciously called Abraham out of that as he's called you out of unbelief. He called Abraham out of that and and he promised to give Abraham so many descendants that he couldn't even count them. You remember, he he takes God takes Abraham outside in Genesis 15 and he says to Abraham, Abraham, look up. And, and, and try, to, try to number all the stars. So shall your offspring be. And that was a promise. Listen, that was a promise of all the spiritual children that Abraham would have. All of those who would believe in Jesus as their Savior. Christian, that promise includes you. When God told Abraham, look up and count the stars, he was talking about you. You're one of those stars. I mean, we sing about this in the children's song, right? We sing, um, Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. We are Abraham's offspring. Now you think about Abraham. Had he done anything to deserve this? 
What was Abraham such a wonderful, upstanding character that, that God said, oh, I just have to have him. I need him on my team. No, this was not a covenant of works. This was a covenant of grace. And you remember to show Abraham this. God takes Abraham out one night in Genesis 15, and these animal halves are laid side by side. And as Abraham is in a deep sleep, God himself passes between the halves of those dead animals, signifying God's commitment to keep this covenant. It was entirely a work of God's grace. God chose Abraham in spite of the fact that he was a moon worshiper. God brought Abraham out of Ur and into the land of promise. God passed between those animal halves, and it is God who would be faithful to his promise to Abraham. As you read your Bibles, isn't this the constant, never-ending testimony of Scripture that God chooses the unworthy and the undeserving. That's everyone in this room. Certainly the guy in the pulpit. Unworthy and undeserving recipients of God's grace. And you read your Bible and you see that over and over. Not just Abraham, but Moses, Rahab the harlot, David, the thief on the cross, Peter, Paul, and on and on we could go. And brothers and sisters, the same thing is true for us. God's work of salvation for us is entirely a work of his grace. He chose to save me without anything in me that would make him choose me. He sent Jesus to take the, the curses of the covenant to take my punishment he called me out of the darkness of my sin and misery and brought me into the kingdom of his marvelous light. And he's done the same thing for you. And, and one day he will bring us to the heavenly promised land where we will live in perfect fellowship with him forever. And so this prayer is a prayer that praises God as creator. It praises God as the gracious covenant-making and covenant-keeping God Number three, it teaches us that God is the Redeemer. We move from creation in this prayer to, to God's covenant of grace with Abraham, and now we come to the Exodus. Children, you all know about the Exodus, right? God's people for over 400 years are stuck in Egypt. They're slaves. Horrible, miserable life. But one day God answered their prayers. One, one day God answered the cries of his people, and, and he rescued them from that horrible oppression. And you remember that God sends 10 plagues upon the Egyptians. And, and finally, Pharaoh says, go, leave, get out of here. And so Israel leaves, they take off, and, and Pharaoh changes his mind. He grabs his army, and, and they chase after Israel. And, and you remember what happens, right? They get to the Red Sea. There's Israel. Before them is this big body of water. And behind them is the most powerful army in the world. Looks like it's over. Looks like they're toast. They're done. The Egyptians are going to wipe them out. But God parts the Red Sea. Israel passes through on dry ground. And when Pharaoh and his army go into the sea after them, God, bam, brings the waters back together. And he drowns Pharaoh 
and his army. Now think about us. Now, slavery in Egypt was bad. Slavery is bad. Horrible. But by nature, our condition was far worse. We we weren't by nature just slaves to the Egyptians. We were slaves to our sin. Slaves to Satan. Paul says in Ephesians 2, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul also says in Titus 2 that we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. Now that's not a pretty picture, is it? But the Bible says that's who every one of us was by nature. You know, sometimes you'll watch the news and, and maybe there's been a, a murder or something really bad's happened and they'll, they'll interview neighbors of this person and the person will say, you know... I've always thought that that people are basically good by nature. No, we're not. We're sinners. We're by nature enslaved to our sin. And we need to be rescued. And in God's incredible grace and mercy, that's exactly what he's done. He's come down to us in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, and he has redeemed us. And so this prayer, this marvelous prayer, reminds us that when we pray to God, we can worship him as the great creator. We can worship him as the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God of grace. And we can worship him as our redeemer. And there's one final thing, and that is that God is merciful. How did God's people respond to his grace? How did Israel respond to God's mighty works of redemption? Well, from verse 16 on, we are reminded that they didn't respond very well. Verse 16 says that they stiffened their neck. In other words, they essentially said to God, you're not the boss of me. You're not going to tell me what to do. Verse 18 mentions the golden calf incident where they They make a golden calf and dance around it in false worship. Verse 26 talks about their disobedience and rebellion. They they cast God's law behind their backs. They killed God's prophets. And on and on it goes with example after example after example of their refusal to submit to God, refusal to obey his commands, and yet God continued to show them mercy. He didn't cast them aside They continue to faithfully love them. After the golden calf incident, he didn't forsake them. In spite of their grumbling and complaining, which was pretty constant, God continued to provide for them. He continued to sustain them in the wilderness. They often didn't believe his word, but, but he still brought them to the promised land. In spite of them doing what was right in their own eyes in the time of the judges, God kept delivering them over and over from the hand of the enemy. 
You, you, really can't, you really can't pick up your Old Testament and read it without saying, you know, it's amazing how merciful God is. It's amazing how, how merciful God was to Israel over and over and over. But aren't you so thankful for that this morning? Don't we see ourselves here in this passage? Aren't we reminded of our own fickle nature? Doesn't this passage, in a sense, bring us face to face with with our own failings and unfaithfulness? I'm often ungrateful, proud, inconsistent, spiritually apathetic. But the good news for us this morning is found in the last sentence of verse 17. Notice what it says. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Brothers and sisters, remember today that on account of Jesus, this is who God is for us. He's ready to forgive. He's gracious and merciful. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. And he will not forsake us. So what's the path forward? What do we do when when the Holy Spirit, working through the word, opens up our hearts and shows us our sin, our shortcomings, our failures, our weaknesses. Very simply, the path forward is confession. It's confessing our sins to the Lord. It's not going to other people and saying, you need to confess your sins but asking the Lord to examine our own hearts, each one of us, and confessing our own personal sins. And as we do that, we can know that God is a God who, for the sake of Jesus, is always ready to forgive. This is a marvelous prayer. It reminds us who God is. It reminds us of his greatness and his power. And remember what Martin Luther said. He said, Christianity is a religion of personal pronouns. In other words, because of Jesus, we can read a prayer like this and we can say, if we are Christians, we can say, God is my God. God has been merciful to me. He's been so gracious to me. He's redeemed me from all of my sins. Isn't that the best thing in the world that you could ever say? God, you are my God. And God, I love you that you've forgiven me.
If you can't say that, I would love to talk to you after the service is over about God's grace to sinners like us. If you can say that, if you can read this prayer and say, God, thank you. Oh, thank you that you are my God. Make sure that you pause to give him praise for what he's done for you. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we thank you that you have placed this prayer in your word. We thank you for the wonderful way in which it points us to you. You are the creator. You are the covenant-making God. You are the redeemer, and you are so merciful. And through Jesus, we can say, God, you are my God. You are our Heavenly Father who loves us. How we praise you this morning. May these truths not only impact our heads, but more importantly, may they transform our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name.